Hey friends, thank you for tuning in to the Ridgedale Students Podcast, a ministry to students, parents, and the community of Ridgedale Baptist Church located in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Our aim is to help students encounter Christ and be equipped as disciples to be sent out to engage the nations. If you listen and find this to be a helpful resource, we'd love for you to consider leaving a rating or review. We hope you're blessed by this episode as you walk the way of Jesus alongside us. Enjoy. I've shared with you guys about a lot of my story. Tonight, though, you know, pre-salvation like Chris, post-salvation Chris. Tonight, though, I think I have to share with you probably one of the darkest times of my like early college career. Total pre-salvation Chris, and it'll be easy to tell when I share with you all of the details of this. There was a two-year period of college. I'm really not a proud. I'm not proud of this. Um, there was a two-year period of college where I cheered for the Alabama Crimson Tide. I know, I know, I know, I know, guys. I'm sorry. If I've lost favor with you, don't don't even Linux. Don't even. This is a dark story, Linux, and I don't need to share it. I, I'm sorry. I, again. I have to wear the hat to kind of make up for it somehow. There was a two-year period of time where I cheered for the Alabama Crimson Tide. It was the beginning of college. And if you've been to college before or you're about to go to college, here's a little tip. When you go into your first semester of college, you can kind of recreate yourself in any number of ways. At that time, Tennessee, like my fandom for Tennessee, had been one of the key elements of my personality. I loved cheering for the Vols. Everyone kind of knew me in that way. And I was in a space where that was expected because my parents were around and my dad's a big Tennessee fan. But when I went to college, Tennessee was terrible. Like, I'm not even kidding. We were awful. Um, And it was really difficult to cheer for a team that was that bad. On the flip side, Alabama was really good. And I shamefully decided to forsake my first love and cheer for the Alabama Crimson Tide for two years. If you want to, just to to give you the full exposure, there's a a picture on Facebook of me wearing red pants and a white button-down and an Alabama visor before going into Bryant-Denny Stadium to cheer. I know, I know. I'm so sorry, AJ. I'm so sorry. I've let you guys down. But I had to share it. I had to share it. It was a different time, and I was trying to become something new. I had been something for a really long time, and I just I wanted to be something new as I entered into this new season. Now, thankfully, the Lord redeemed my season of wandering, and He has brought me back to the fold. And I cheer for the Vols wholeheartedly and have for the past, like, ten years. But, but, there was a dark time. We walked through this series on baptism. Last week, we talked about the fact that baptism, when we say that we are buried with Christ in His death, that what we're equally saying is that we have died to something ourselves. We no longer identify with the thing we identified with before. That baptism, in part, is a celebration of the death of sin's control through the death of Jesus. Here's the thing, though. If we were to just stay dead, then baptism is null. We would have to stay under the water, and all of us would... Drowned to death or something? I don't know. It would be a really dark, a really dark moment. But we don't stay dead. There is a flip side of baptism. That we are buried with Christ in His death. And then we're equally raised to walk in newness of life. We were in Romans 6 last week. If you look at verses 3 and 4, it's where we get this language. Verses 3 and 4 says this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that... 
Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so our death in being buried with Christ in his death is a death to sin's control. And it equally ensures, as Paul's saying here in Romans 6, that we'll be raised to a newness of life. It's an exchange. We lay down one life that we previously lived and we take up a new life. But so many of us in going into baptism and in coming out of baptism don't actually know what walking in newness of life is. How many of you, if I were to ask you kind of point blank, if you could tell me what it was like to walk in newness of life, could give me a very clear, very direct, very thought out answer? Not many of us. In fact, as I was preparing for this message, I couldn't really do it until I had really sat down and thought, what does this look like? Why is this something we say? Is this just fun words or is this something that actually holds water? Here's the thing. Sadly, many of us have been told how important baptism is. You've probably heard over and over and over again if you've grown up in church, baptism is important. You need to be baptized. You have to be baptized depending on who you talk to. But most of us, if we ask the question, well, what do I do after I get raised out of the water? What do I do after my baptism? The answers are typically crickets. We don't have a great answer for that. Here's what I want to do tonight. I want us to look at three areas of life where we will see marked change in our lives as we come out of the water and begin walking into newness of life in the process of baptism. I want to look at three areas, and here's the focus of all of this. Here's the kind of takeaway for everything. That baptism is the beginning of a new life in community with people and with Jesus. Baptism is the beginning of a new life in community with people and with Jesus. So you go to the Lord and pray with me. Father, we thank you for your goodness. God, we thank you that you have an answer. We're not just raised to walk in nothing. That there is a true newness of life. And we're laid out before it in the scriptures. And so God, help us to see it in your text tonight. Help us to walk in it as followers of Jesus. We ask all of this in your son's name. Amen. The first area that I think we do this, or the first area I think we see this, is in the area of discipleship or spiritual formation, depending on your kind of language preference. We see it in Matthew. If you look in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 20, we're going to kind of pop around to a bunch of different scriptures tonight. So Matthew 4, 18 through 20 is our first. We see this, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. There's a few things that you come to learn in this passage really quickly. Simon and Andrew were professional fishermen. Not like Bassmasters Classic fishermen where they're going out on the weekends and like fishing big tournaments. But they were professional fishermen. This was their livelihood. If they caught fish, they got paid and they could eat. If they didn't catch fish, they starved. And so their whole life revolved around the art of fishing. Around the practice of fishing. Around the profession of fishing. Everything they did. And probably from a young age too. They would have learned where to fish and where not to fish. How to fish, what boat to use, how to do things with the fish after they got them out of the water, where to go if you needed to find a good, like, quick haul of fish. They would have known all of these things and been taught them by somebody who was a professional fisherman before them. They would have been apprentices to another fisherman. Now, Jesus is out walking by the sea one day. Pretty normal thing to do, I think. If you live close to a sea, just go on walks. So Jesus is out walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he sees Simon and Andrew. And he calls out to them. What does he say? Follow me. 
This was a pretty common call to people in that day. They would have understood what Jesus was inviting them into. This is a call to discipleship, is what it's typically been known as, a call to discipleship. Now, to understand discipleship a little bit, like we sometimes can, can get convinced that discipleship is like a purely Christian thing, that we invented discipleship, but we actually did not invent discipleship. When you look in the New Testament, the word mathetes is where we get our word disciple. Mathetes in the Greek is where we get our word disciple. But discipleship even begins further back than the New Testament. It begins in the Old Testament. We see the process of discipleship developed out in the like, rabbinic traditions of the Old Testament. All the way back in like the Torah. Now the word that we get discipleship for, or what loosely translates to discipleship in Hebrew, is this word Talmudim. Talmudim. And now there's, there's a whole like, structure to the Talmudim system. There are three layers of it, and I'm not going like, to bore you with that because it's super nerdy, but I love it. But what you need to know is that Talmudim didn't most closely translate to disciple. More than anything, it translated to apprentice. To be a Talmudim was to be an apprentice of somebody. Who here is familiar with like what it is to be an apprentice? Anybody know what an apprentice is? What's up, Isaiah? A person who like works for another person for experience for a certain amount of time. Boom, man, Isaiah on the money. Yes, Isaiah hit the nail on the head. A Talmudim or an apprentice <laughs> would have been somebody who went to a master craftsman and they learned all of the tricks of the trade. If you wanted to be a Talmudim of a carpenter. You would go to a master carpenter, and he would teach you the art of carpentry. If you wanted to be a fisherman, you would go and you would apprentice under a person running a fishing boat. And they would teach you all the tricks of the trade of fishermen's stuff. And so here we see that this process of discipleship that's developed in the Old Testament that gets fleshed out into the New Testament is not so much like discipleship in the term that we think of it. Where it's like we meet around the table and we have coffee and we have a nice little conversation for about an hour. To be a Talmudim, to be a disciple, to be an apprentice was essentially to leave everything you had known before and to go out and follow the master that you were trying to learn from. So when Jesus comes to these men and he tells them, come, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. What Jesus is essentially doing is he's calling them to leave everything behind, to take up his way of living and to learn from him. This is what it's like. For us to walk in newness of life, it's for us to begin learning under a new master as apprentices. See, the goal of formation, the goal of discipleship is, I think, in three parts. And I don't take credit for this. This is something I pulled from John Mark Comer, who's way smarter than me. But to be an apprentice, to be a disciple, to be in the process of spiritual formation is to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, to do what Jesus did. If we're disciples of Jesus, if we're walking in newness of life, then the process will look like this. We'll be with Jesus naturally in prayer, in scripture, study, gathering in community for worship. All of that is aimed towards the goal of us becoming like Jesus. And then as we become more and more like Jesus, we go out into the world to try and do the things that Jesus did because we have apprenticed under our teacher, Jesus. Now, here's the thing. I tell you guys, I tell you guys this all the time. We are constantly being discipled by something. All of you are in the process of discipleship one way or another from one thing or another. We're either being discipled by the world. We're being discipled in like the way that we participate in social media. You're being discipled anytime you get on TikTok. And if you don't believe me, I promise you, TikTok is the greatest disciple maker in our culture right now. 
Every time you hop on social media, every time you go to a practice for a sport, every time you participate in some sort of activity for school, you're being discipled into something. It's trying to create within you some sort of thing that looks like what you're participating in. Now here's the thing. What ultimately determines our formation, what ultimately determines our discipleship, is going to be what our life mission is. What do we want to become? If we know what we want to become, then we're obviously going to participate in the things that disciple us into becoming like that thing. If we want to be more like Jesus, the obvious answer to becoming more like Jesus is to be a disciple of Jesus. If I want to become Lionel Messi one day, I'm going to watch all the clips of Lionel Messi and watch all the soccer games I can and practice soccer constantly. That's what my process is going to be. And so what we learn is discipleship and our life mission go hand in hand. We can't separate what we want to become from what we're doing. And that takes us to the second area that we have to look at, is mission. We have to look at how we interact with mission. If you go to Acts 2, you all have heard me read this passage over and over and over again. But in Acts 2, we read in verses 42 through 47, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Guys, this is the perfect expression of what discipleship, getting fleshed out in mission looks like. The Acts 2 church is a beautiful picture of community, but even more so, if you dig down to like the bones of Acts 2, what you begin to see is that this was a people who were gripped by a mission, who let that mission get fleshed out in the way that they did normal everyday life. It was the perfect representation of it. The early church was a disciple-making machine that was fueled by very clear, very applicable gospel mission. And you see this zeal sometimes, like if you know what it's like to have been a new believer. I remember when I was a new believer, like first came to Jesus. I wanted everything I did to be Jesus. Like every single thing I did. I wanted to go to the grocery store and listen to gospel music. And I wanted to go hang out with people and talk about the Bible. I like would sit up until 2 o'clock in the morning on Saturday nights waiting until the next day that I could go to church. I was talking to Sierra the other day, and she was having a conversation with this girl who's just become a new believer. And they were talking about camp and like her serving at camp this summer. And the girl was like, I just I want to give back so much because God has done an incredible work in me that I want to give that to somebody else. I want to be able to pour back into another person's life. This zeal for gospel mission is all over us when we become new believers. It's how we know that it's real. It's how we know that it's authentic. Here's the thing, when we cultivate the new life of discipleship, when we invest into that kind of life, the discipleship that we've been called to, it will manifest a radically different vision of how life is supposed to be lived. When you begin to invest yourself into this call of discipleship, into the life of discipleship, then what you're eventually going to see is that new priorities and new things that you want to be a part of and new avenues that you want to walk down will become the new normal of the way that you do life. You'll stop wanting to do the things that you want to do eventually. I'm not saying that's a simultaneous, like instantaneous overnight thing. But over time, as we invest more and more and more into this, you will watch as new patterns of life begin to come up in you. You'll notice that life in Jesus will come with new perspectives, not just on sin, not just on the things that we die to, but on the things that we live for. 
When you come to Jesus, you don't just die to things. You begin to live for certain things. What are some of these examples? Money. I think money becomes something that we look at, not as something that serves us, but as a way, a resource for us to love and serve others. I think time becomes not just for leisure, but for loving and serving and gathering in community with people. We begin to prioritize our time differently. I think the home becomes something other than a solitary fortress. It becomes a place where we invite people into. If you've ever been into me and Sierra's home, you know like that's how we see our house. It is a place for us to welcome you in and to have you as our guests. Finally, influence. We see it as not something that we can build a platform on, but we begin to see our influence as something that we can leverage for the sake of others in the kingdom. Here's the crazy thing. When we begin to invest ourselves deeply into the life and the mission of Jesus, what you'll start to see is your schools, your teams, your clubs, everything in between become mission fields. Not just mission fields where people aren't like people, they're projects, but where people are people that, who, who are loved and deeply desired by your Father. You'll see those places become mission fields. You'll see your neighbors become objects of love and intentionality where you want to know people and you want to invite them in to know you and the Jesus who's loved you well. You'll begin to see a radical shift in almost every way in your life. And I've watched that happen over the last 10 years of me following Jesus. Things that I thought one way about five years ago, I no longer think the same way about. I've been following Jesus for 10 years, so it wasn't an instantaneous thing, but it's something that we grow into as we invest and cultivate more of that life in our lives. See, the Church of Acts isn't just a wonderful picture of community. It's a picture of what happens when people invest a life of discipleship into the mission that God has called us to. When we walk in newness of life, we begin to see our life mission as something radically different than what it was before. The last place that we see this is in the church and our relationship to the church. Y'all, I've grown up in the church my entire life. My parents started working in student ministry when I was four years old. My first student ministry retreat was when I was six. They threw me on the back of a Hummer and launched me up a mountain with a bunch of high schoolers, and it was the coolest thing I've ever done. Um, I like What you see with Samson now is how I grew up, just constantly around, constantly doing stuff. Some of my greatest memories and some of my worst memories have happened in a church building. I remember the first time that I got in like major trouble in church, me and my friend Ben Gross would sneak down into the, um, the fellowship hall on days that we had the Lord's Supper. And we would drink all of the extra glasses of grape juice and then eat all of the communion wafers. And like one of the deacons came down and found this and it was not pretty. It was terrible. They dragged us back up into the sanctuary. And I don't think I've ever gotten a spanking or like a whooping outside of that one confined uh, moment in the church. At least there were a lot of them outside the church, obviously. What happened over time, though, was when I got into middle school and high school, I began to kind of like have a different relationship with the church. The church began to be the place where I wanted to gather socially because all my friends were there. And all my friends were there because I spent a ton of time there. But I didn't really have a love or a deep desire to be in communion with Jesus. I just wanted to come to church because my best friends were there. Because I could go on fun trips. Because I could participate in fun activities. Well, then that leads to like first few years of college, dark years of being an Alabama fan, where I, like, I walked away from the church completely because my ties to the church had nothing to do with Jesus. They had everything to do with the people that I went to church with. But if our ties to the church have nothing to do with Jesus, then we have no substantive relationship with Jesus. And we definitely have no substantive relationship with the church. Now, some of you may have a mixed relationship with the church. With this many people in a room like this, we are bound to have very diverging stories on our relationship to the church. I've had conversations with some of you where your church experience was very different than my church experience. 
where I found love and like fun and a great community of people, you found other things. You found things that you did not enjoy and did not love and things that probably very easily could have chased you away from God altogether. Here's the thing. When I'm talking about church here, I mean like the small C church, this type of gathering where we come on Wednesdays and we come on Sundays. I'm not talking big C church quite yet. But here's the thing. All of us can have a mixed relationship with church. Maybe you were forced to come to church as a kid. And that led you to a place where you were like, oh, I just want nothing to do with this. Maybe that's you right now. You've been forced to come to church tonight. And if that's you, man, I'm so glad that your parents made you come here. Maybe you like, were growing up in church and you saw some really jacked up stuff in the church. You saw a pastor do something inappropriate. Or maybe a pastor did something inappropriate to you or your family. Man, that sucks. That stuff is real. Like, I, I can't downplay that at all. Those things happen all the time. And it can lead us to have these very like toxic difficult relationships with the church of Jesus. Here's the thing. The simple fact that I've found, though, to bring it back into this perspective of baptism and being raised to walk in newness of life, the simple fact that I've found, not just in my theology, but in my lived experience, is that church won't mean something to us until we have been raised into newness of life. But when that newness of life comes, we begin to see the church for what it actually is. For the longest time, when I would go to church as a kid, or even when I would go to church as a teenager, what I would see is a disconnected group of people who would wake up way too early on a Sunday morning, who would drive to a building that wasn't decorated very well, who would sit and sing songs that were definitely not as good as the songs I heard on the radio, and who would listen to really boring sermons that felt irrelevant and inconsistent with the life that I saw in front of me. But over time, what I came to see as my eyes began to be opened, as I began to see Jesus for who he was, what happened was that I began to see the church in the way that Paul describes the church in Romans 12. We get into Romans 12, and we read this in verses 3 through 8. Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, and he's talking about the church here. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. When we begin to see the church in this way, what we come to find is this, and this is like absolute fact-based. The church of Jesus is the most diverse, multifaceted, multi-talented organization of people in the entirety of human history. Or you look back at the history of the church and what you find is people of every walk of life, of every ethnicity, of every talent, of every socioeconomic status, of every kind of gifting imaginable who come together and say, Jesus is better than anything this world offers me. If you really dig into church history, if you really dig into the roots, you'll find people all across every continent known to man where they are using their gifts and using their talents and giving themselves over to a life completely devoted to following Jesus. That is the church. The most beautiful thing about it is the church has never been about a building. It has never been about programs. Even as much as we've tried to make it about buildings and about programs and all this stuff, the church, as Jesus established it, has never been about those things. 
It has always been about a people, about a family who bring people in, who love them and give them opportunity to use their gifting and their talents for the glory of God and not themselves. When we are raised to walk in newness of life, our view of the church changes in proportion to our exposure to the church. That's why it's so important for new believers to be invested into a local body. I hear so many people who are like, I love God, but I don't love the church. Well, then you don't love what Jesus died for. It's kind of a juxtaposition there. It's hard for us to not love the church if we claim to love Jesus. As I wrap up, I have to share something with y'all. It's really embarrassing. Not really embarrassing. It was embarrassing at first, but it's not as embarrassing now. And the more I've thought about it, it's gotten less and less embarrassing over time. Last week, we're talking about like dying to our sin. We're opening up this conversation on baptism as we look at, you know, what does it look like for us to be baptized? What does it look like for us to die to our sin? And as you broke off into your small groups last week, I asked you all the question, like, what, what was your baptism experience? And most of, I mean, all the high school guys had an answer. They had an answer of what it looked like for them to come to know Jesus and to be baptized. They could tell me places and people and dates and ages that they were when they were baptized. And about the third person that answered it for the high school boys, I started to think to myself, what if they asked me the same question? Y'all, if I can be real with you, I have no idea what date I was baptized. I've been baptized twice. I know, shocking. I've been baptized twice. I was baptized when I was six, and then I was baptized later, like once I finally came to realize what it was to be an apprentice of Jesus when I was in college. But I cannot, for the life of me, tell you what that date was. And so as I was thinking, as I was asking these high school boys this question last week, I was like, man, does this make me like kind of crappy? Like, am I asking them a question that I can't answer myself? Is that like me being hypocritical or like something not genuine or authentic to, to, I don't know, whatever? The more I thought about it, the more I kind of came to an ease over the question. Because while I may not be able to tell you the date that I was baptized, I can absolutely tell you that my baptism was just one marker on a journey that had begun long before I was baptized. My journey starts on January 1st, 2013. I've told you guys this tons of times. Sitting in the Georgia Dome, listening to preaching, totally disengaged, and then like a light bulb turned on and everything changed. Everything began to make sense. I began to see Jesus in a way that I'd never seen him before. What it was, what it was really happening in that moment was I was falling in love with somebody that I had known about and I had never known. It was like I had known about Jesus my entire life. And finally, I had the experience of actually knowing Jesus deeply and intimately. My life mission from that point on looked very different from the life mission that I had put together for myself. I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to make money. I wanted to have power and status and all of this stuff. And now here I am in a room full of like 30 high schoolers and middle schoolers. And it's the best life I could have imagined. This is so much better than what I would have planned for myself. My life mission radically changed, but it brought me to you guys. It brought me to this church. It brought me to this community. That is the best possible thing that I could have had. It changed the way that I view the church. For the longest time, I told you already, my view of the church was just a group of disconnected people who would come together and do boring stuff. I remember still very vividly sitting in this chair, this dirty old chair that I found on the side of the road that was in my like bedroom in college, 2 o'clock in the morning. And I was just counting the minutes until it was time to wake up and go and worship with the church the next day. I, could not, I couldn't be satisfied. I had to, to get there as soon as possible. See, a lot of times when we begin talking about our salvation, the first, per, the first question that people will ask 
is are you baptized or are you not baptized? Where were you baptized? When were you baptized? All this stuff. People are trying to discern something about your walk of faith or your walk with Jesus. And I just, I don't think that's the best question that we can ask. I don't think whether you're baptized or whether you're not baptized is the best question to ask when we want to discern something about how we're following Jesus together. The better question, I think, is more often, what has come alive in you? What has come alive in you as you've experienced Jesus deeply? Is Jesus more beautiful? Is he more real than he's ever been before? Is following him more satisfying than it's ever been in your entire life? Is your life moving on a radically different path because of Jesus? Not because of like, I needed to change, not because I read this book and it was awesome, but because I experienced Jesus and now I am radically different than I was before. Is the church more than a building? Is it more than programs? Is that a family for people who may have had great families and may have had really crappy families? People who may have grown up around a really loving home and people who have grown up not having a loving home. Has it become more than just a program and more than just a building? Has it become a family that you belong to? See, if you can answer yes to some of those questions, then I would say something has come alive in you that I can promise you was not alive before. We do not naturally see Jesus as beautiful. We do not naturally change our life trajectory because of anything. We don't naturally change our view of the church. We change these things because something comes alive in us that wasn't alive before. You may be on the journey. So here's my question. The better question that we can ask ourselves in light of all of this is where does the marker of baptism go? Is it something that you practice because you could celebrate the fact that something's come alive in you and something has died in that same process? Then, man, let's talk about that. Let's celebrate that together. But if that's a question that that you can't answer with a definitive, like, man, this change happened. I died to this, and I came alive to this, and I marked it with this moment of baptism. Then that's not to say, let's go out and fill a tub up and dump you right now. That's not to say that we need to do that this week or this month or even this year. But that is to say that you should really and truly consider having a conversation with somebody about what it looks like to enter into the covenant of baptism. Pray with me.